This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. and welcome to the podcast. This is Anne-Marie Schieber from Healthcare News. A few weeks ago, there was a webinar that caught my attention. It was hosted by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, FAIR, and it has nothing really to do with wokeness. The topic of this webinar dealt with eugenics, the desire to perfect the human race. Now, is this a reality in modern healthcare, and should we draw the line, and how? Uh, my guest today is Robert Grayboys. He is an economist, journalist, and musician, and uh, with the, the uh, president of the consulting firm RFG Counterpoint, and he is the voice behind the Substack Bastiat's window. He was one of the three speakers on this webinar panel. Welcome. Hi there. It's good to talk to you again. <laughs> So many people are vaguely familiar with this uh, topic of eugenics, uh, gained infamy during Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. The Nazis, of course, were defeated, and many assumed eugenics went by the wayside. But has it? No. Well, let's let's go back a step. Uh, so yes, we tend to associate eugenics with the Nazis, but by no means did they invent it. Uh, eugenics started in Victorian uh, England. Uh, really by a circle of people who were geniuses, but uh, kind of had a twisted sense when it came to perfecting mankind. Uh, in, in England, it was sort of benign. They practiced what was called positive eugenics. What they wanted was the top 10% of society, the elite. They wanted uh, those people to marry one another and to produce lots and lots and lots of children to stave off the hordes of uh, inferior people as they saw it. Now, eugenics jumped the Atlantic and came to the United States, and here it became a truly dangerous thing. It, uh, it transmogrified into something that became known as negative eugenics. And the idea behind negative eugenics was we had to find out who were the most inferior people in society and get rid of them. Now, there were actually studies in the 1910s uh, from significant institutions, from Carnegie, I forget, Foundation, and I, I should know, but Foundation Endowment, uh, um, looking at the possibility of euthanasia against uh, inadequate people. But they decided that was a little too harsh, so they turned to sexual sterilization. Uh, They managed to carry this all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which uh, in a horrifically awful ruling in 1927, Buck v. Bell, uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote that the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover the cutting of the fallopian tubes. Mm. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Uh, And on the basis of that, 70,000 Americans, at least, were sterilized. And it didn't really go away. With Eugenics got a terrible name. It jumped from the U.S. to the Nazis. And the Nazis were very explicit in acknowledging, we got these ideas from these great American eugenicists. 
we're just going to do it better than they do. Wow. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, there was even the director of a eugenics hospital in Virginia, where most of the sterilizations were done in my state. Uh, in one of the board of directors reports, the the director of the institution said in the mid 1930s. Uh, the great German Republic is beating us at our own game. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So it's, uh, it's quite an appalling history. And at the Nuremberg War Trials, uh, the Nazis' attorneys pulled this stuff up. They said, look, we, you know, these guys weren't doing anything that wasn't okayed by your U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, obviously, uh, U.S. Supreme Court didn't okay Auschwitz and, and that sort of thing. But they had a lot to go on, and it was it was a, a, a difficult case to make. So I'll, I'll let you get back to it in a minute. But so what happened was, by the late 30s, both because American eugenicists were getting kind of crazy and their methods were getting really shoddy, it was getting a bad name in the U.S. Uh, and World War II really stopped anyone from talking about eugenics. It didn't stop them from doing it. Again, in my state, which was one of the most prominent states in in the in the whole eugenics effort, it's where the Supreme Court case came from. Uh, Virginia was doing eugenics sterilizations until 1979. Wow! And you can argue that the state of California, which was the other really big, I mean, there were, there were dozens of states doing this, but Virginia and California were the big ones. California arguably stopped doing eugenic sterilizations in 2014. Oh my goodness. Yes, wow. they were they were doing them in prisons. Yeah. Uh, it was primarily African American and Hispanic women in prisons, you know, were told, well, if we if you let us sterilize you, I don't know, you can get it. I don't I don't know if they if it was a quid pro quo explicitly, but they were doing these and in some cases without telling them. So California finally, uh, the publicity hit in, I think it was 2014, and they shut the program down. This stuff does not go away. It lingers in many ways. Yeah, I don't think many people are familiar with this dark history. They certainly don't think that this goes on today. I mean, just up until 2014 in prisons, it's just shocking. Um, you know, this idea of perfecting the human race is, has always been controversial, but you write in the 19th century, it did get a little bit of cover because then it was associated with this emerging field at the time, applied probability theory, statistics. Can you tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so any listeners out there who took a course in statistics in high school or college, where you learn about the, the normal distribution and 5% uh, uh, tail on the distribution and hypothesis testing. And if you've done the F test or the chi-squared tests, uh, regression to the mean, regression analysis. Think, these are the things that underlie all of modern science. Without, without modern statistics, uh, probability theory, applied probability theory, you don't have space flight. You don't have quality control in factories. You don't have uh, pharmaceutical testing of the sort that we do. Everything in modern science is built around this. But the dark secret, and I wrote about this in Bastiat's window just a couple of weeks ago in 
an essay that was called The Briar and the Rose. Uh, my metaphor was that eugenics was the briar and statistics was the rose. The field of statistics, to a large extent, was developed, you can say, by three men, Francis Galton, Carl Pearson, and Ronald Fisher, who are the, the greatest names in the history of the development of mathematical statistics. They, were, they developed the field to give a scientific veneer to their snobbery and their racism, and they were awfully explicit in both. Uh, so anytime you take a statistics course, you are taking something that grew out of this awful field of eugenics. And eugenics was not a, a, a little niche, niche thing in the, off on the edge somewhere. It was mainstream science. Uh, it was published in peer-reviewed journals. And very much like a lot of worrying trends today, it was highly politicized. And if you were a scientist who thought there were, there were problems with eugenics, you, you dared not say so. It was good to keep your mouth shut because otherwise your academic career was going to be at risk. You were going to get booed off of stages. You weren't going to get published in journals. Uh, it, was, it was awful. And, and it was, again, it was mainstream. Medical schools were teaching this. High schools were teaching it. Uh, if you go back, uh, the, the Scopes Monkey Trial, which is, the, the, which is generally portrayed as this sort of battle between modern science and enlightenment versus uh, kind of dark ages, we're going to outlaw the teaching of evolution. Uh, well, the book that John Scopes was teaching out of was a eugenics text. And if you went into it, it had tables on it on which racial groups were superior to other groups. Uh, there was a, you know, long, long ago, Stephen Jay Gould, who was a rather famous and public intellectual and, and biologist, uh, died, I think, in the 1990s. They wrote an article about William Jennings Bryan, who, who was the one who defended, who, who opposed John Scopes in that trial, and you know, is, is sort of portrayed as a backwards, you shouldn't teach evolution, anti-science. And Stephen Jay Gould was rather fond of William Jennings Bryan. And what he argued was, he said, he said I like Bryan, I don't know why he was so anti-scientific, but I've concluded, I think, that a big, good part of the argument is the teaching of evolution was so wrapped up with eugenics mm, and mm -hmm. this racism that he thought it was better just to can the whole thing. That you know, go go ahead and throw the baby out with the bathwater because the bathwater is polluted, <laughs> hydro polluted and hydrochloric <laughs> acid. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's got a long, fascinating history. I I learned it in a class back in 1996. I have since, uh, there's a little film that you can find out on the web called The Lynchburg Story. It's on YouTube. There's a not terribly good recording of it there, but it's still, if you get past the buzzing in the first two minutes, it's worth listening to. It's a 45-minute video on the history of eugenics in America, and uh, I would say probably it's the most influential people, piece of film, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that I've ever seen. Wow. 
What about euthanasia? You mentioned that earlier, and it was kind of looked down upon when eugenics came into the U.S. Uh, as being too extreme. And so they ended up um, thinking more in terms of sterilizing people. Um, but eugenics or euthanasia is uh, not so uncommon today. In fact, in Canada, it is now one of the 10 leading causes of death. And we have several states now that have legalized physician-assisted euthanasia. Is this kind of a backdoor for euthan for eugenics uh, that we might perhaps pressure people to um, sign DNRs, do not resuscitate orders, or you know, in Canada, what has happened is they lowered the bar for who could. Uh, a request physician-assisted suicide. So do you think that this could be used in an extreme way at some point? Should we, how, how worried should we be about this possibility? So euthanasia is a complex topic. Uh, I think if you want to start with kind of a mind-bending article, and again, I can send you links if you like. Uh, there's a scholar, Brookings Institution, by the name of Jonathan Rauch, R-A-U-C-H, and he has written on what he called hidden law. Hidden law was the idea is that there are certain things that we do that if we ever try to write it down, we get ourselves in you. Any way you write it down, you will end up on a slippery slope. So in it, he says, we've always had euthanasia. It's always been a wink and a nod, and some family member is in grievous pain. They're terminally ill. They're suffering horribly. And the family and the doctor sort of quietly come to some sort of unspoken resolution. And uh, essentially, the person uh, is euthanized. But no one says it. I mean, it's, it, it sounds like you're being sneaky, but really, it's 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 a wonderful article and and, uh, and a terrific piece to read. That it's these are just things that we have to do on an individual basis and rather quietly. Because if you write down, oh, it's okay to euthanize people, then you open the floodgates, and there 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 are some pieces that I always had my students read and that I still distribute around. Uh, there's one. There was a, a, an American psychiatrist by the name of Leo Alexander who was sent over to Europe after the Nuremberg trials to figure out a question. His question was, why didn't the German medical authorities do more to put a stop to the horrors that were happening? And he was stunned. He was there for, I think, a couple of years doing this research. His conclusion was they didn't stop it because they were the ones starting it. That it was this very paternalistic medical society. And there's an article that I, by a fellow named James Maccaro, that I, I, I recommend. He summarized Alexander's work. And at some point, the German, you know, when the Germans took over the Netherlands, they marched in and said, well, you're now under us. So doctors, we have a, a German medical society has its sort of mission statement or whatever they called it, an oath. And it was saying that a German doctor's task is to create, 
to make sure that the population is as healthy and productive as possible. It sounds okay, unless you think about it. And the Dutch doctors said, well, we've thought about that, and we actually don't agree with that. We don't think the doctor's job is to make a productive society. Our job is to reduce suffering, to heal the sick, to make uh, make life better for the individual patients. And they said, well, yeah, but, you know, our army is in your backyard now, so you, you're going to sign this statement that your job is to produce a productive, healthy society. And the Dutch doctors said, we will not sign it. And the Germans said, well, if you don't sign it, um, we're going to take your licenses away, and actually we're going to send some of you off to prison camps. And they said, well, just do it then. And that's what they did. And interestingly, not one, as far as I know, this, I think this is correct, not a single Dutch doctor was ever implicated in anything. And it was because 100% of them said, we're not going to change our mission to, make, to, to meet uh, this. Now, part of it, one of the earliest actions was uh, the under the Nuremberg Laws, Germany started euthanizing sick people. I, I, ought to, I ought to memorize the German expression, but it was a life not worth living. <clears throat> and they, you know, they thought they... They honestly, I think, thought they were doing a favor to people, saying, well, we're going to put you out of your misery. Anyway, the, the Dutch doctors escaped this. Now, what's ironic, and we did readings about this in the class, if you jump forward 40 years, 50 years, the Netherlands became the hot center of legal euthanasia. And originally it was, well, you need this many doctors to sign off, and it has to be someone who's terminally ill. You can't do children. You can't do this. It has to be extremely tightly controlled. But what was, what started happening was a creep. It's, well, okay, they don't have to exactly be totally terminally ill. You know, it could be just they're really sick, and you know, they may, maybe they're not going to die, but we'll, you know, they're, they're suffering, so we'll do this. And... You ended up with, arguably, again, this is highly controversial and subject to a lot of different interpretations when you look at the specific data, but you seem to be having cases where, uh, well, maybe we're euthanizing people because they are suffering from depression. They're not terminally ill. They're not in any pain, but you know, they have depression and so maybe instead of you know, Valium, you're, you're euthanizing them. And the numbers started creeping up. The same thing's been happening in Canada. I'm actually going to do some looking at that with uh, a Canadian fellow. And I think arguably Canada has become the most active euthanizing country out there. Now, you, you've also got a couple of states in the Union where it's legal. And again, there's, if, if I wanted to have, sit down and have a long ethical discussion, I could debate the ethics sort of, of, of you know, at what point is it ethical to do this if someone is in 
excruciating, endless pain, and they're going to be dying in a month. Is it okay? But, uh, for instance, in the state of Oregon, there were a couple of celebrated cases in the 1990s where now there was one woman who she she had cancer and she wanted some uh, a, a medication that was extremely expensive and Oregon had an explicit rationing system that they were very proud of and said well no the the cost benefit ratio is is out of whack we can't give it to you the the benefit is too low the probability of benefit uh, and the cost is far too high. So, uh, but they said, "Oh, but by the way, we, we're not going to we're not going to give you the particular chemotherapy that you want. But if you want to be euthanized, we'd be happy to help you out with that." Yeah, they, and and she was livid and went to the press and said, "I did not need the state of Oregon inviting me to commit suicide." So I think you get into differences when it's. You know, is the person asking for it, yeah. or is the state? And the, the the trouble is, again, going back to that hidden law argument. Once you codify it, once you make it legal, you start sliding down those slopes. Where you institutionalize it, and that I guess gets back to your statement where you don't write this stuff down. Um, and you know, that's some of the concern mm-hmm. about advanced directives because you never really understand all the circumstances that you're going to be faced with in a crisis. So all of these uh, things, I'm, we're going to have to, um, I'm going to have to let you go, but we um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Robert Grayboys, for coming on the podcast to discuss all these uh, big topics, eugenics and euthanasia, um, and how this really is not necessarily a thing that is um, a, a thing of the past. It gives us a lot to think about. Nope, but we need to think. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I will include the links that we discussed in this podcast uh, in our notes. And as always, if you enjoyed this conversation, we ask that you share the link, rate us on your favorite platform, and become a regular subscriber to the Heartland Daily Podcast. This is Anne-Marie Sheeper. Mm-hmm.